0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Investors Chronicle IC Questions podcast. I'm Alex Newman, podcast editor at the IC, and this week, as part of our bumper Christmas issue, I'll be asking our company's writers for some of their predictions for various stocks and sectors for the year ahead. First up, it's Pharma and our pharmaceuticals writer, Megan Boxall. Megan, what went wrong for Big Pharma in 2017?
1: Well, quite a lot, really. It was not a good year for, for UK Big Pharma. So it all starts off really well because everyone had been really worried. Obviously, this time last year, we'd just come out of the US elections and everyone was surprised that Donald Trump had got in. But the pharmaceutical companies were all thinking this is fantastic because Donald Trump doesn't care so much about high drugs prices. They were all very wrong. turns out Donald Trump does care just as much as Hillary Clinton did about very high drugs pricing. And he made his views very, very clear sort of January and February time. But then we had the whole debacle about the Obamacare and the pharmaceutical companies thought, well, Donald Trump can't get anything through Congress. So we're fine. He's not going to be able to clamp down on drugs prices as he promised. So then the pharmaceutical companies had a great six months. Share prices were doing really well and there was quite a lot of optimism. People were starting to think we've come to the end of the patent cliff, which is where all the drugs companies lose their patents on their top selling drugs but then in June Evaluate Pharma which is just sort of tracks the pharmaceutical industry came out with this report which said that drugs pricing was going to have quite a big impact on earnings between 2018 and 2020 and they actually lowered their guidance for the growth in the pharmaceutical industry it was the first time they'd ever done that before and it just had a massive impact on the share prices of pharmaceutical companies around the world. And the report came out at the same time as um, second quarter earnings and none of the second quarter earnings were particularly spectacular. Everyone started to panic. Since then, the share prices have just been dreadful. And GSK, AstraZeneca, Shire, the UK's big pharmaceutical companies had a really terrible six months.
0: It's worth mentioning as well that those uh, UK pharmaceutical companies, they take the lead still from the US healthcare industry, don't exactly. they? their biggest market. So dreadful years, sentiments well down. Can we expect any improvement in trading conditions for the year ahead?
1: The issue of drugs pricing is still going to be there in the next year. I don't think Donald Trump is going to stop tweeting about it. Um, His most recent tweets on the subject have been in October and there's there's still going to be these debates going on.
0: But you think uh, drug pricing may be slightly less of an issue for uh, certain companies in the sector?
1: There are some companies which should be more immune to it than others. For example, if you take Novartis, which is a Swiss company, it recently launched a a cancer drug um, which is the first of its kind it's the best trial results that a drug's ever had and it's managed to get itself a $400,000 price tag for this drug wow it's just unbelievable and I mean there's all sorts of uh, bonuses if it doesn't work patients get their money back but well the patients family because if it doesn't work The patients probably died I mean there's there are so many ways that drugs companies manage to get these massively mm-hmm. high prices through and it is if they have really novel drugs which work incredibly well so in the uk companies like astrazeneca and shire are probably not going to be that badly affected because they're working on really really creative new treatments which they're going to be unique if they get launched um shire specializes in rare diseases astrazeneca is building up a real niche in the um in the immuno-oncology market um, which is using the immune system to treat cancer so so those two companies arguably will be able to push through really high prices in the same way that Novartis has done this year. But then GSK, which is the other massive pharmaceutical company in the UK, has more of a specialism in HIV and in respiratory and in areas of the pharmaceutical market which have massive populations but actually don't require really, really like novel treatments. So for them, there is potentially more of an issue regarding uh, drugs prices because they are working in the types of areas where regulators are really going to clamp down
0: So pricing, regulation, as ever, themes to watch. Megan, you've also picked out another theme and that's uh, one you cast your eye over regularly as our resident telecoms expert. 5G spectrum auction. That's a confusing combination of words, not least for a smartphone Luddite like me. Can you briefly, Megan, talk us through what this auction is for?
1: They're virtual bandwaves and they are used to carry, at the moment, 4G, 3G, 2G. So that is the mobile network um, that you use when you want to log on to the internet, when you want to use WhatsApp or Facebook or BBC News, when you're on the move and you're not actually connected to Wi-Fi. At the moment, 5G actually doesn't even exist. It's just a, a concept. But when the idea behind it is it's going to be the fifth generation of mobile network, for it to be launched and for us to actually use it, telecoms companies in the UK will have to buy the spectrum, the, the wave bands which can carry that signal. And... The UK's telecoms regulator, which is Ofcom, is going to put those wave bands up for auction. Well, what it was meant to be this year, it's now dragged on until next year. Um, And the reason it's dragged on for that long is because there's a big debate over who is allowed to bid for how much of the auction, um, how much of the space that's out there. It's all very contentious.
0: What are the implications were BT to be ultimately successful in bidding for 5G Spectrum? Is it going to hit their bottom line very heavily?
1: Yeah, so last time any Spectrum was auctioned in the UK, well, Vodafone was the single biggest spender. It spent close to £800 million and then EE spent £600 million. So it's really, really costly. And the problem for both BT and for Vodafone is they spend an awful lot of money anyway. Um, But because they're both big dividend payers, that is a bit concerning because if they've got a big chunk of cash coming out in random years and it probably is now going to be next year that this chunk of cash is going to come out for the spectrum people are worried about what that's going to do to their dividend and for Vodafone Vodafone is looking a little bit more stable than it did a few years ago so maybe that's not so much of a concern But, but for BT which is also having to spend so much on potentially the Champions League football, and then also on Openreach, which is the Wi-Fi network in the UK. They're both things that are costing them so much money anyway, and then you've got the pension deficit as well. BT is already spending a lot of money, and whether it can even afford to spend enough money on the auction and continue to pay its dividend, it's just a massive challenge on the horizon for a company which already has a lot of challenges going
0: on. Okay, fantastic. Thanks, Megan. Uh, Next up, it's property. And I'm joined uh, now by the IC's property reporter, Jonas Crosland. Jonas, you've highlighted one trend to look at for the year ahead, uh, and that's logistics centres. We hear there's increasing demand.
2: So what are the drivers? E-commerce, basically. It's come at an interesting time because after the financial crash, New build virtually dried up, banks weren't lending money, and there was no demand there anyway. But as as the situation has changed with e-commerce and online buying accelerating, the big companies have found that they really need distribution centres which are in short supply. So companies like London Metric, which has 800,000 square feet under construction, 84% of that is already pre-let. So there's very little risk element in the development arm. The demand is is basically a product of people using the computers to order stuff online, and then expecting it to be delivered within one hour. So, uh, the, the the big distribution centres are already established, and they were fine because people like uh, Primark used to just deliver to their their shops or their outlets, but now they've got to have smaller purpose designed distribution centres which can be you know within an hour of half of london and that's very difficult to come by so people like london metric and schroder reit are sort of buying in these assets and redeveloping them and then renting them out basically
0: you know it sounds like it's unprofitable to build new sites but rents therefore you'd reason or, or for a big increase is that something we're going to see uh, feed through to the share prices do you think of the of the sector in the the year ahead
2: well we hope so because um, you know higher rental income is obviously good news the one caveat possibly is that some point rents are going to rise so much that it's going to be profitable to build new distribution centers and obviously once the supply increases So the upward pressure on rents decreases. But I can't see that happening just yet because I think it's about 12% of retail sales are online now. As compared, well, I think it's nearly double that in in America. So we've got a way to go, yeah.
0: And 2018, I mean, when it sounds like then we're not going to see a huge turnaround in the pipeline of new sites being built?
2: Certainly not, no. No, it's very unlikely you'll see many sites or purpose-built sites being built. There will be sort of refurbs, conversions Ironically, the, the greatest demand is where it's most expensive. In other words, um, you could easily acquire somewhere in the countryside, but you need somewhere to deliver within the major cities, London especially, where competition for um, assets is extreme, from you know residential offices, etc.
0: As ever with property, it's key to find the the parts of the market which are are being squeezed. Thanks very much, Jonas. Uh, We turn now from logistics to banking and Emma Powell, who covers financial services for the IC. So Emma, the watchword for the challenger banking sector has been consolidation in 2017. What were the catalysts for all of this? Can we expect more in 2018?
3: Well, basically, the catalyst has been an increase in competition. I think the the challenger banking sector has become a lot more crowded ever since the financial crisis, really, when a lot of the major lenders have... Come out of these niche areas as they simplify their strategies. So a lot of um, these challenges have gone into specialist markets like buy-to-let lending, asset finance, SME lending. But as you as you mentioned, uh, this year we've had two big takeovers in the sector of uh, Shawbrook and also Aldermore. And I think for those two, they've yeah, they've had very rapid loan book growth since listing three years ago. But I think they looked very much um, like they had reached as far as they could go. Like I said, they are very concentrated in asset finance and buy-to-let lending, essentially, um, with some SME lending thrown in. And I know Oldermore's management said that they were welcoming uh, First Rands, who's acquired them, um, their approach, because they thought that it would give them the necessary funding to really accelerate their growth and also expand their product range. And I think also that the fact maybe some investors might have thought that they had reached maybe as far as they could go in growing by themselves is reflected in the fact that they were willing to accept not overly generous offers at all. They they weren't really great multiples, but you know they were they were a slight premium. As for whether we can expect more in 2018, the sector's looking a bit more bare now, but we do still we do obviously still have some players. I think the nearest challenger banks to Shawbrook and Aldermore would be One Savings Bank, and there's also uh, Charter Corp, which is newly listed so I think that's less likely but one savings bank actually it's a lot bigger than Oldmore and Shawbrook. it's kind of returns a bit more impressive also so it would require a bigger takeover bid and probably a more generous multiple I think takeover multiple but given its kind of concentration in buy to let and also asset finance it wouldn't surprise me if it was subject to a takeover bid
0: any chatter on that front are we hearing there, rumors there's, there's of-
3: not so far no? but um, this is just my feeling
0: <laughs> idle speculation exactly which, which, which will inevitably turn into something brilliant so the other theme uh, for challenger banks uh, in 2017 had, uh, has been margin pressure um what's causing this i think you hinted at a couple of a couple of things that may be driving this before but i mean do you expect it to continue in 2018
3: I think it's inevitable that it will continue. There's kind of been margin pressure in two areas, really. So the first one, and actually this applies across some of the major lenders, is in the mortgage market. Because obviously, the rate that you can, the money you can make as a result of lending uh, mortgages is a lot lower than it has been. And I know for a lot of banks like Virgin Money which is actually the most recent one to warn on this it's basically the margins they're making on their front books which is basically mortgages they they've written more recently are a lot lower and so a lot of their back books are running off so the older business which is which is written at higher rates is running off so obviously that's creating more margin pressure and again the mortgage market has become more crowded and i think banks like Virgin Money are a lot more concentrated obviously than a lot of the big lenders and then another area which I find more interesting actually is the the asset finance market, which a lot of the challenger banks really flowed into about three years ago, just because again, a lot of the major lenders came out of it after the financial crisis. But what's happened is very recently, banks like uh, Close Brothers and also Secure Trust have decided to stop writing new business in that area just because they basically said that other lenders their competitors were writing new business at very low margins and perhaps not pricing the risk correctly which is obviously a you know worry you'd be you'd be more worried as an investor I think, in close brothers and secure trust if they were chasing business at any cost so that i think that is a positive that they decided to stop writing new business in that area which was also i guess the rise of the asset finance market and more lenders going into it. it has also been fueled by the term funding scheme which is something the bank of england introduced when they did the uh, interest rate cut just after the referendum last year. And that basically allowed some lenders to borrow funds from the Bank of England at base rate. So it just allowed them to reduce their cost of funding. But obviously that meant that a lot of kind of lenders could go into the market and lend at a lot lower margins.
0: Just to bring it back to uh, what ultimately counts for investors as well. I mean, will this margin pressure turn into further share price pressure or you, you talked about that there's already a bit of a bearish sentiment in the market. Has that all now been reflected in the uh, in the sector valuations?
3: Not necessarily. There's actually uh, the challenger banking sector is still expensive. I would say uh, most trade above forecast net tangible assets, um, unlike a lot of major lenders who who trade below. And also, you know, we've had a very minimal base rate lift, but the Bank of England's not say 99% not going to be suddenly raising rates you know a lot more next year plus the additional competition I think it's inevitable that we will have further margin pressure.
0: So possibly an area to avoid save for the white knights who might come in with uh, potential bids for those stocks.
3: Yeah I think so.
0: So pressure of a different kind is building elsewhere among the world of utilities a sector which Tom Dines is here to talk about. So, Tom, your prediction for the year ahead is regulatory-themed. We know that gas and electricity providers are facing a price cap, but there could be knock-on effects elsewhere in 2018. Can you talk us through some of your thoughts on that front?
4: Yeah, so the household energy suppliers have been under the thumb for a while now, we talk of a price cap uh, coming through in various forms, and most recently as the draft bill, which would impose a temporary cap. This is unlikely to go away, and the impact is primarily going to be on the big providers – They've already been hammered by numerous efforts to increase competition in the energy supply market. So in recent years, we've seen uh, SSE in the year to September lost 410,000 customers, and uh, Centrica uh, lost 823,000 between June and October this year. So they're already under pressure. So what we'll see in 2018, they will try and... In my opinion, try to seize the initiative on uh, energy price regulation. So, we've already seen SSE and NPower proposing to combine their domestic operations and spin out as a separate company, effectively divesting. And uh, Centrica, a few days before they announced their uh, customer losses, put out a, a number of policy proposals which basically they would scrap the SVT, the standard variable tariff, which is the kind of the subject of all this regulatory talk, and put in fixed-term tariffs, these sort of things, that would basically cut any regulation off at the knees and make it unnecessary. The other side to this, away from energy and gas, is water. The energy price cap regulation is coming from a place of these companies are supposed to serve the public and they aren't necessarily the best value for money. In the last calendar year, we've seen numerous news stories about Thames Water paying out big dividends while uh, leaking uh, billions of tonnes of sewage into the Thames or just losing a lot of water through leakage. So they've suspended their dividend. But the um, it's kicked off a debate about the water sector. How good is it for consumers? Are
0: there signs in place already that companies like Thames Water are going to be hit by new regulation?
4: There's been... Rumblings that that the next uh, five year regulatory period, which is the the water companies are in the process of putting together their business plans now, there's been rumblings that this they'd be slightly tighter this time. That that tends to happen every time, but the difference with this five year period is we now have the relatively realistic prospect of a Jeremy Corbyn government. A major plank of Labour policy is nationalisation, and recent uh, polling from the Legatum Institute indicated that a major, a vast majority of even conservative voters. Uh, we're in support of nationalising gas, electricity and water. So there's real pressure on the government to prove that they can keep these industries in check.
0: So 2017 has been a very tough year for the energy companies. 2018, it sounds like, could be a quite a tough, tough year for water companies, or at least on an uncertain year.
4: Absolutely, yeah. And we've already seen share prices start to come down around the speculation. So it be interesting. Fantastic.
0: Thank you, Tom. Finally, we head to the world of Blue Sky Technologies and Blue Prism. And to discuss this company, one of the best performing investments among the stocks we write about in 2017 is Harriet Clarfelt. Harriet, what does Blue Prism do and what went so well for it in 2017?
5: Blue Prism specialises in robotic process automation or RPA. It has what it calls a digital workforce of software robots, which automate back office functions in large organisations. So some of their customers include IBM, which is an IT group, BNY Mellon, an investment house, and also Procter & Gamble. When the company floated in March 2016, shares were placed with investors at about 78p. Today, a share is worth around £12. That's nearly a 1500% increase, which is astronomical. Yes, so it was a very good stock to have owned over the last year. What went well for it in 2017 and what is supporting that share price? First of all, demand. So they proved that they have a lot of people interested in their products. Blue Prism actually announced in a trading update for the full year to the end of October quite recently that they had won 609 software deals during the year. And that compares to 189 a year earlier. It's a massive increase. In terms of revenues, they've also had massive revenue growth, which is another encouraging sign for investors. Analysts at Investec have upgraded their forecasts by about 14% to 24 million, which would be more than 150% increase year on year. Again, another very encouraging sign for investors. The other thing I think has been that has been quite encouraging for shareholders is that management has talked about moving into new markets. And they referenced Japan as a market for which automation is quite a nascent trend, but it could show significant upside for them. So that hasn't materialised yet as far as we're aware in terms of their results, but um, it's something to look forward to for next year. We also know that the total addressable market for RPA is pretty huge, and research houses haven't quite agreed on what size the market was in 2016, but I know Forrester said it was about $250 million, and that could rise to $2.9 billion by the year 2021. Again, that's a motivational sign for investors.
0: Looking at a share price graph of Blue Prism, it looks like in in about the last month there's been a bit of a correction. Any idea why this is? Is this just people banking their enormous profits to pay for Christmas or is there a sign that things could be slowing or is just a fivefold customer growth year on year just an impossible task to replicate?
5: So I think the shares have have really come off. They haven't come off by that much, but they have come off since the most recent trading update, which was in November I think it was almost inevitable that the shares were going to fall slightly after that, because the company has been quite reticent in terms of regulatory news statements over the last year. So we had that interim update in June, we had this trading update, but there's been no news on sort of deal count or revenue increases or anything like that until the update. So the share price was really being sustained on hopes and momentum alone, really. I think the other potential issue is that although management said the revenues for the full year were going to exceed market consensus expectations they did say that cash losses were going to remain in line and I think investors probably knew that losses there were still going to be losses but perhaps they hope for more of a narrowing and I suppose it's not a great reminder that you bought an incredibly expensive stock and actually it is still loss making the other thing as you as you rightly said is that a lot of investors will probably just be taking profits you know the stock has had an incredibly good run and some might just wanted might have wanted to cash in and, and look elsewhere.
0: When we get to the end of the year, we always look back at the stocks which did so well, and we're, you know, are prone, I think, to um, wondering if they will do so well again in the year ahead. Is Blue Prism a yardstick for anything more than its own business model? Is it a prism through which we should view the broader automation sector?
5: I think looking at Blue Prism on its own, there are issues which might affect any business which could cause shares to dip again next year. So, for example the deal count might slow. We've seen incredibly impressive updates recently on on how many customers they're winning and renewals and everything like that. I think another cause for a share price dip might be sort of slowdowns or contract cancellations, but we haven't heard anything like that yet. Also, any serious pressure from other automation competitors, although actually there are two other main competitors not listed, private companies in the US. We don't know much about what they're doing. We do know they've got large customer bases. Is this the prism through which we should view the wider automation trend? Yes, in a way. Blue Prism is probably the best example on the UK Stock Exchange of an automated software company. The huge share price increase does reflect shareholders' confidence in the wider robotics and automation theme what they do is quite specific. So software bots, it, it doesn't sort of roll off the tongue, but it, it's not sort of what Ocado is doing, for example, which is using robots in fulfillment centers to carry out people's orders, or what ASOS and Boohoo are doing, automating their factories. So we do have other examples of companies incorporating automation into what they do. I think automation isn't going to happen overnight, and we have realized that, but Blue Prism does exemplify the fact that automation is probably going to happen and in, sort of, in sort of incremental stages. People's jobs are going to be automated activity by activity and it's quite an interesting insight to how that pattern is developing
0: so one big tech stock to watch for 2018 there thank you harriet that's all we have time for today our bumper christmas issue will be out in shops soon for more podcasts go to the investors chronicle website acast or itunes thank you